Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. Welcome back to Carolina Newsmakers. We're ending a year and starting a year, both on sort of the same edition of Carolina Newsmakers this week. John Hood is our guest. He's the president of the John William Pope Foundation. And of course, as you know, been listening to this program for a long time, a very frequent guest on our program. And John, uh, uh, you know, he, he got his upbringing as a member of a think tank. And so he, I've always sort of visualized John sitting around with a pipe in his hand and, uh, you know, a, a sport coat with leather uh, pockets and so forth. But anyway, uh, this allows John to to bring to, to light things that I don't have time to think about, but find very interesting. How about that? John, welcome to the program. I appreciate that uh, introduction. I, I did once smoke a pipe, uh, but that was many decades ago. Well, you know, it's interesting that uh, I, I, I wrote a piece not so long ago for a, a, a little humor magazine. Uh, whatever happened to pipe smokers? Because you don't see many people smoking pipes these days. But back in the 50s and 60s, uh, it was a very frequent occasion where you would see people with pipes. And my dad it, it ran a drugstore. Of course, we had a supply of pipes that were for sale. Uh, and uh, he used to say, don't ever hire a person who smokes a pipe because they spend half their life keeping it lit. <laughs> it's true. It was part of the appeal was sort of fiddling with it. Uh, I, I never liked the smell of cigarette smoke, honestly, but pipe tobacco always uh, thrilled me as a kid. And that's why well, I tried it. Just came, it just became a too lot much of trouble. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people felt the same way. I, I always uh, enjoyed being around someone who was smoking a pipe more than someone smoking a cigarette. Yeah. And you're right. Well, let's, uh, let's first of all, sort of take a look back at uh, 2022 and talk about things that didn't happen that maybe should have happened. And I guess we could probably start with the federal government and look at what Congress and the president did during 22 and what they did not do. And that might lead into what they might do in 2023 as we have a change in the makeup of the Congress. But let's start with a review of 2022. How would you rate that year, John? Uh, in Washington, Congress and the Biden yeah, administration, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd give them a D uh, simply because I, I generally agree with their response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but in not much else. <laughs> uh, they, they did pass some bills that were mostly too expensive or wrongheaded, in my view, but they left a couple of three maybe uh, gigantic problems that we all know are problems that have been problems for years, and they just sort of left them sitting and didn't do anything about it or even made them worse. One of them is the fundamental lack of fiscal responsibility at the federal government level. We've been running trillion-dollar deficits now for years. Uh, there is no way for America to uh, survive as a commercial republic and a uh, military power and a leading light in the world uh, if we consistently run these kinds of deficits. And we run them primarily to pay out benefits, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and some other entitlements. Mostly what the federal government does now is collect revenue and pay it back out in the form of entitlement spending. It's not very and much. In all fairness, this, yeah, I so, was going to say, in all fairness, this has been the practice of both, of both the Democratic and Republican administrations. Oh, yes. This is not, oh, yes. yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's a is- problem. That's why it's so hard to fix. But I mean, I just think that the rest of the country looking at Washington and thinking about the political class and its performance each year, they have to start with the biggest problem facing the federal government, which is its massive irresponsibility and the fact that the, neither party seems all that interested in coming up with a practical solution for it. So that's one of the reasons I'd give them a bad grade. The other one is their inability to do anything about the, the crisis at the border. You can believe that we ought to have very restrictive immigration policy, or you could believe that we ought to have fairly unrestrictive immigration policy. The main thing is we have to have a policy (laughs) and the policy (laughs) has to be uh, applied and enforced in some practical, rational way instead of people just wandering back and forth and sneaking over the border and constant deportations and this and that, the other. So we, we, the Congress on both of those matters and there are others did, you know, nothing of, of any consequence. And until they do something of consequence about those two obvious problems, I think the general public will have contempt for Congress and it will have been earned. Let's look ahead a little bit now. Uh, now that we have a uh, a Congress that is uh, at least has one uh, is split as far as the direction of, from their party leaders, one being controlled by Democrats and one being controlled by Republicans ever so slightly in both cases. What? will they do in 2023 to uh, to look at those two major problems that you just mentioned or will they just sit back and say let's kick the can i think that on the immigration border question there is a possibility of coming up with some sort of an arrangement of course our own north carolina senator tom tillis uh, attempted to fashion such a deal in the latter stages of of this year's session i think it was doomed and probably unwise to try to do that but understand his impulse. And I think something like an arrangement where there is more spending on and more seriousness uh, about border security combined with some sort of pathway to legal status for people who are here, for example, the so-called dreamers who are brought here as children. And it's unreasonable to try to send them back, send them back where they've never lived anywhere else, really. So that there, there are some ways to make some some progress on this issue require leadership on the Democratic and Republican sides of the aisle. I don't know if it's possible, but it, I, I don't know if it's likely, I should say, but it is possible. Uh, on the entitlement question and the, the overall fiscal irresponsibility, I, I don't really see a lot of progress in that front in 2023, just because I don't see either party taking the issue very seriously. They ought to. It's one of the reasons we have the inflation problem we have is running all these massive deficits and the Federal Reserve basically monetizing it in the form of additional money, um, but or additional borrowing, I should say. So I think um, I think that the immigration issue, perhaps, and there are a few smaller issues. I think that there was some progress in 2022 on getting uh, the United States military back up to where it needs to be to, to respond to the threats that our country and our allies face. I think there'll be additional progress on that front in 2023, and that will be welcome. Those are both areas where there is genuine interest among Democrats and Republicans, the legislative branch and the executive branch, uh, to get uh, the United States ready for the confrontation with China over Taiwan, for example, or to help sort out what's going to happen uh, through the the next several months in Ukraine. John, uh, let's talk a little bit about foreign relations. Do we uh, improve ourselves or are we still... Uh, faced with foreign relation problems that uh, need to be, I mean, we always have some that need to be attended. Did we make any progress in that area in the last two years? 
uh, I think that the United States leadership role in Europe is actually stronger. Whether whether you could simply credit events or some concerted effort by Biden uh, and the Biden administration or both is debatable. It doesn't, whatever the combination of causes, it's certainly the case that the United States is more of a leader of Europe and Europe is following more of our lead on things like defense spending and defense readiness than, than it was previously. Uh, I'm not sure I would say the same thing about the United States position in, in Asia. Our relationship with India is strained. Um, our relationship with allies like Australia and uh, and Japan is strong, but some of what they're doing is because they sense a lack of leadership in, in Washington rather than strong leaders. And then our position in the Middle East is in, is in uh, some difficulty. Uh, there was these uh, silly attempts to try to rekindle the deal with Iran that was originally negotiated in the Obama administration. Fortunately, the Biden team has, it seems, finally given up on that silliness, but there was more wasted effort there. And the relationship with Saudi Arabia and some of the other Arab states that have been uh, uh, cooling their relations, improving their relations with Israel, uh, that's a problem. And so I think that it's a mixed bag, but I think in Europe, the United States is in a stronger leadership position. And that could have been brought about by the Russian invasion of the Ukraine because that uh, did uh, unite the, the NATO agreement, and in fact, even expand the NATO agreement. Uh, so. Well, it did. I mean, it was a response to Russia. I mean, think about it this way. The, I think the great cardinal disaster, cardinal sin of 2021 was the withdrawal from Afghanistan. That think that was embarrassing and will be a bl black spot on the Biden administration for, for all time. One of the consequences of that was in Asia a kind of a doubting of, in the Middle East, indeed, a doubting of American leadership and a desire to scramble around and figure out some other arrangement to preserve their the, the, our allies' interests. In Europe, though, it worked a different way because I think that the withdrawal from Afghanistan was one of the reasons why Vladimir Putin thought he would get away with uh, going into Ukraine and not getting much of a, a retaliation. He sensed weakness. He was mistaken. And Europe ally, uh, our European allies in the United States did cohere around a rational uh, strategy of response that has helped Ukraine was resist the invasion. But again, I'm not sure the invasion would have happened in the first place if the United States had not signaled weakness by the, the flight from Afghanistan. John, from time to time, I think we forget about the importance of India. India, of course, we, we, we don't, for some reason, or other think of them as being as important to world relations as is China. Uh, what's your view on our relationship and how we can better our relationship with India? Well, if you, if you just think about it in basic terms, there are three important relationships. Three, three of the most important relationships America has are with the Europeans, you know, with our allies, the NATO allies, with China, with Japan, and with India. So four, actually. China, those relations are as an adversary. The other three, presumably as allies. And our relationship with India is probably the worst of the three. And that's dangerous. Uh, India is, is in, is actually been in, in recent months in hot war with China. They've actually been uh, fighting each other and killing each other along the, the borders. They have a long border, actually, and a disputed border. Um, and India was not was not enthusiastic to join the sanctions against Russia, its primary source of military equipment and other other relationships. Uh, India uh, energy 
the Indians buy a lot of energy from Russia. And so the, the relationship with India is absolutely essential. Without strong relationships between uh, the U.S., Japan, India, and Australia, uh, we simply cannot contain Chinese expansion. We cannot preserve free trade and free movement and the institutional order in the Far East. And so I, I would certainly hope that um, leaders of both parties understand how important the relationship with the world's most populous country, India, is. And yes, it's probably got more people in it than China. China lies about everything, including its population. <laughs> I'll, I'll let that one go and uh, merely talk about what we're going to do in the next segment. We want to turn next in the uh, next segment of Carolina Newsmakers with John Hood, our guest, talk about inflation and recession, two words that are we are hearing almost daily in the news these days, and how he views North Carolina and the United States reaction to those two words. And we'll do that when we come back with the next segment of Carolina Newsmakers. You stay tuned. The Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council present the story of Tom and Levi. Tom is the smartest man I know. He's been a professor at two major universities, been a teacher for over 40 years. One day he told me that he was having um, problems in his classes. I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. And he was telling them that he was doing it as a favor to them. But I think in reality, he just wanted to get out of there. Um, I was really starting to worry because I saw something was wrong. Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me. And my love for him was just immense. When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash our stories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers with John Hood, who's been on our program I don't know how many times. But uh, John is always a... a uh, person who brings great insight to a lot of different issues. And one of the issues I want to talk about right now are the two words that we're hearing a lot about. Uh, we didn't hear quite as much about it during the holiday season, I guess, as we did in uh, September and October. The word I, inflation, and the word R, recession. Um, I think most people, John, that I'm hearing saying, especially in North Carolina, that if we if we have a recession, it's probably not going to be a a long one, maybe more one that fits the definition of a minor recession. But inflation is a bigger problem. So how do you think North Carolina and, for that matter, the Congress will address these two big issues? I would say that the chances of recession are pretty high. Uh, you're right that lots of Economists believe it would be relatively mild 
certainly wouldn't be like the 2008 Great Recession or something like that, they, they argue. The, the famous story, which I'm going to get it a little bit wrong, but the famous saying is that economists have predicted 13 of the last seven recessions. In, <laughs> in other words, there are there can be a, a little more gloominess to people's prognostications than is deserved. But in this case, uh, not to get too technical here, but there is a a term called inverted yield curve. And what it basically tells you is that normally speaking, people demand to be paid more interest uh, to loan you money for longer periods of time. You know, they've, if they've got money, they can loan it to you. They can loan it to somebody else. If somebody else will give them a shorter time period, then they can make they'll be willing to take less interest on it. If they if you if if you want to lock down their money for you know 10 years or something, they want to be paid for that with in the form of higher interest. What happens right before recessions, more often almost always, is that that yield curve inverts and basically the interest rates become flipped. And we saw that uh, just a few weeks ago, one of the largest inverted uh, yield curves in the bond market that in in recent memory, uh, most people think that pretty much has to predict a recession. They might be wrong, but it seems likely that, that there would be some kind of genuine downturn in 2023. There's been some indication of slower hiring and companies uh, uh, having uh, not as much difficulty uh, as they used to. In other words, they might not be out there hiring as many people, which might suggest a potential recession. We'll just have to see. I think North Carolina is in relatively good shape if we go into a recession, by which I mean our economy is is reasonably uh, diversified. It's not as if one big industry is driving the, the economic engine of our state and that industry is going to take it on the chin. We're going to have some sort of disaster. We'll suffer just like everybody else if there's a recession, but I think we're in reasonably good uh, conditions uh, where we have a, res a more resilient economy. As far as state government is concerned, we have a significant amount of money in reserve for exactly this eventuality. I was just looking at the numbers the other day, and the state government in North Carolina has, oh, about $5 billion in savings reserves and other kinds of reserves could be tapped in case of emergency, and another uh, more than $3 billion of uh, just unspent money in the general fund. In other words, something like you know $8 billion plus of reserves in case there's a recession. That means that it's very unlikely, even if it was a significant recession, that North Carolina would have to lay off state employees or raise taxes or something like that to respond to a recessionary budget deficit. So that's good news. Lots of our companies are also well positioned to weather a mild to moderate recession. Uh, I'm not trying to downplay the significance of it. If it happens, it'll be awful. Um, but we're we're better prepared for for this kind of downturn if it happens than, than we have been in, in the past. And we have lots of uh, announcements of companies that are either building or planning to build here in North Carolina, and that will keep the labor market tight, especially the upper income salary range. Uh, as we all know that almost everybody, almost everywhere you go, you see signs, help wanted, help wanted, help wanted, signing bonuses and things of this nature being offered. Uh, that does not usually go with a recession. That's true. Uh, not quite as much as there was just a couple of months ago. And you yeah. know, keep in mind, Don, that some of those announcements, if we if we get into bad times in 23, those announcements are not going to pan out. Lots of economic development announcements don't actually pan out. People 
announce I'm gonna, we're going to put this plant in and we're going to hire a thousand people. And if you check back five years later, they never actually hired a thousand people. They hired, you know, 350 people or 450 people. And now they have 200 people. <laughs> you know, this happens fairly often, even in normal times. A lot of these announcements are bigger, bigger talk than, than action. And if there's a recession, some of those uh, promised jobs and promised uh, facilities just won't happen, at least not anytime soon. Now, you mentioned the other word. it's worth yeah, just I've saying that the, uh, we're still dealing with significant inflation, as anybody who goes to the grocery store can, can tell you. Uh, but right now, in recent months, we are experiencing not uh, the end of inflation, not a ramping up of inflation, but what is called disinflation. In other words, inflation is still high, but the rate is going down. The rate of inflation, rate, rate of rise in the prices is going down. Uh, obviously, we want that disinflation to keep going until it get until inflation recedes as a significant problem. Right now, though, there is a very real possibility if we first quarter or two of 2023, we will have what might be called stagnation, which is very little or maybe even negative growth in the gross domestic product combined with high inflation, continued high inflation. And that really is miserable. Now let's turn to uh, looking at, uh, um, we're, we're of course two years, uh, now less than two years away from the uh, next election cycle. Uh, we want to look at uh, uh, what we will be facing in North Carolina as far as our voters will be looking to select a new governor. Um, and that race is going to be very interesting. Uh, what do you see as prospects for both parties as far as candidates? Because, of course, Governor Cooper will be moving on. He will have served his two terms. True enough. Uh, on the Democratic side, the, the betting is that Attorney General Josh Stein will be running for governor. In fact, there's so many people announcing or rumoring to run for attorney general in both parties that it seems like a foregone conclusion it will be an open position because Josh Stein will seek the Democratic nomination for governor. I've heard a couple of ideas of maybe other Democrats might want to run for that. I doubt it. I think that he is the presumptive nominee if he is to run. On the Republican side, you might also almost say the same thing about Mark Robinson, the lieutenant governor, at least if you've been looking at recent polls that suggest that he is far out ahead in name recognition and positive ID than other potential Republican candidates. But I think there are at least two other candidates besides Mark Robinson that could potentially run for the Republican nomination for governor. One of them is Dale Falwell, currently the state treasurer, and the other is Steve Troxler, currently the agriculture commissioner. Both have been elected statewide multiple times. Troxler, in fact, is got one of the largest margins of victory as a Republican statewide uh, in recent memory. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean he could defeat Mark Robinson in a primary, but he certainly starts out with a lot of name recognition among Republicans, at least, and a lot of it positive. Don't know if that kind of primary will develop. We're assuming that Mark Robinson will run for governor. That seems likely, though there has been talk that perhaps if there was a congressional seat when they redraw the congressional map uh, in the coming year, which they will, uh, perhaps there'll be a congressional seat that is in the triad area where Mark Robinson is from, he's from Guilford County, uh, that he might run for Congress. Uh, the argument being that his style 
his rhetorical style and, and way that he approaches politics might be better suited to a federal legislative office like uh, U.S. House of Representatives or U.S. Senate rather than being an administrator, which is what the governor's office primarily is. So I've heard that theory. I don't know if Mark Robinson buys that theory, but I have heard it. And if we had, for example, a Mark Robinson versus Josh Stein general election in 2024, I think it would be contentious. I think it would be very expensive, probably the total spending between hard dollars and soft dollars and independent expenditures will probably be north of $100 million. And uh, I think that it would be hard to predict because Mark Robinson is a controversial figure who uh, I think has said many things that would damage him in a general election in 2024. But Josh Stein is, is frankly more left of center than probably any nominee for governor in North Carolina history. So I just think that that, that race would be, uh, would, would be quite striking. Uh, now, assuming that all of this is happening, you've got an open seat then for attorney general. You'd have an open seat for lieutenant governor. We also know there will be an open seat for labor commissioner because the current labor commissioner, Josh Dobson, was elected uh, in, in the most recent cycle. Uh, he has said that he's not going to seek a second term, wants to spend more time with his family and so forth. And that means there'll be an open seat for labor commissioner. I've already heard names in that area, too. And so we've got a lot of seats. Now, one thing we won't have in 2024, of course, we'll have a presidential election. One thing we won't have in North Carolina is a U.S. Senate election. Uh, so that that will be one thing we don't experience. But all these other races, plus a competitive seat for Supreme Court, North Carolina Supreme Court in 2024, will, will keep political uh, tongues wagging. John, we have not ever had, to my memory, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe we've ever had uh, in recent years candidates from the Council of State that are mentioned as gubernatorial candidates. Um, um, well, I mean, obviously, been... attorney generals have run multiple times and lieutenant well, governors. So both of yeah, them. So I, mentioned, exactly. I, I suggested a scenario where the lieutenant governor runs against the attorney general. Well, I mean, the, Dan Forrest was the most recent Republican nominee. He was lieutenant governor. Uh, yeah. Jim Gardner, you may remember, ran, was lieutenant governor. He ran for governor. Dennis Wicker, the Democrat, was lieutenant governor. He ran oh. against Roy Cooper, right? Or was it Mike Easley? I'm yeah. sorry, Mike Easley. So he runs against Mike Easley, yeah. who was yeah. the attorney general. Mike Easley won. So those yeah. two seats, yes, they, they tend to feed into the governor's race. Lieutenant governor, attorney general. Now, agriculture yeah, commissioner, I that's I wasn't different. thinking about attorney general when I was talking about council of state, but obviously yeah. the attorney yeah. general is a member. But other than the attorney general, most of the council of state positions have never been, uh, to my knowledge, have not been candidates for governor. That would be yeah, stepping stones. If, they have not all typically all. been. You're, you're quite right. Now, you know, the secretary of state, Alarm Mar Elaine Marshall, ran for U.S. Senate. She didn't win. Yeah. Um, yeah. But state treasurer, uh, which Dale Falwell's position or state agriculture commissioner or some other office like that, it's not the worst thing in the world. You have run statewide. And another example, this isn't a council of state seat, but of course, in just the most recent election, we had a former chief justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court run for another statewide office, U.S. Senate. And, you know, she didn't win. Obviously, we know that Ted Budd beat her by a few points, but she ran a good race and it was a competitive race. So candidates who have run for other offices statewide um, 
often do pretty well. They don't necessarily win, but they often do pretty well for governor or U.S. Senate. It's a logical thing to do. You mentioned Sherry Beasley. Does she have a political future? I doubt it. Again, we're not going to have another Senate race for a, a number of years. And I think by then there will be so many other Democrats who want to run for Senate and will not have previously lost a race that I think she might struggle to get the nomination again. Our guest is John Hood. He's the president of the John William Pope Foundation. We've got another segment of Carolina Newsmakers coming up, and I can't wait to find out John's opinions and thoughts on the issues that we will bring up in that segment. And we'll do that right after we take time out for these messages. Hey, Dad, how do airplanes fly? What's in this box? Can I touch this? Where does sand come from? Is this tree good for climbing? What happens if I mix these two things together? How are babies made? What does this thing do? Kids are curious about everything, including guns. Talking to them about gun safety in your home is a good first step, but you can do more. Always keep your guns locked, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition. Storing your guns securely is the best way to prevent family fire, including unintentional shootings. For more information on safe gun storage and ways to keep your family safe, visit endfamilyfire.org. That's endfamilyfire.org. What do we keep in the attic? What's this thing called? Can I ride my bike backwards? Like I said, kids are curious. It's up to us to keep them safe. Brought to you by End Family Fire, Brady, and the Ad Council. Melissa from Michigan. I work an extra part-time job serving lunch at my child's school. But I still can't afford to put food on our table. Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Now once again with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back with uh, John Hood, president of the John William Pope Foundation, Carolina Newsmakers. Uh, We want to talk a little bit about Congress, the dynamics of Congress, uh, the Senate being under one administrative, uh, under the leadership of one party and the House under another. We want to talk about that. But first of all, I want to sort of catch up on what John is doing. John has written a number of books, a number of uh, very interesting books, including some uh, fantasy novels that uh, I have not read yet. I'm looking forward to, but also some other great books. Uh, for example, a great book called Jim Martin and the Rise of the North Carolina Republicans uh, and uh, our best foot forward investment plan for North Carolina's economic recovery. John, are you working on any other books right now? Well, my next book will be the third in my uh, historical fantasy series. Uh, the, the first two books, Mountain Folk and Forest Folk, uh, are set in the Revolutionary War period and the War of 1812 period, respectively. And my third novel in the series, which is called Water Folk, will depict the Texas War of Independence, the Alamo, and the Mexican-American War. It's not all about war, but those, those are good ways to think about the time periods. How long does it take you to write a fantasy novel like that? Oh, several months. Uh, I mean, you, you've got to do a lot of research. I mean, that some of it is fantasy. I'm making things up, obviously. But because it's historical fantasy, a lot of it is very deeply researched. I'm right now researching the composition of the walls of different parts of the Alamo Fort 
to make sure I don't mistake now that was this wall made out of Adobe or was it wooden palisade and what what side did it face and which side of you know so I've, I've been trying to get some of the details right even though uh there there are also monsters and fairies in it which of course I try to get the details no. right about them but that's easier because I make up the details myself I often get John because he has an extensive vocabulary and he usually has a word of the day for me. Uh, never have you had a word of the day that I had the least idea in the world what it meant. <laughs> so I am counting on you to have a word of the day. And again, not anticipating having any knowledge whatsoever of the definition of this upcoming word. So what is your word of the day today? You know, I was afraid you were going to ask me that. I have, in fact, been working today on uh, some of my writing tasks, my syndicated column and a little bit on my books. And I've just I've felt sort of adulpated and not been able to really oh. get around to looking up a word for you. So I, I apologize. My excuse for not having a word for you is that I am adulpated. OK, now exactly what does that mean? <laughs> adulpated uh, simply means confused. And actually, it's not as hard to, to decode as you might think. Just think about it this way. You know what the word addled means. I've been addled today. Yep. And you know yep. that a pate is another word for your head, right? Yep. So addled-pated just means confused head. There you go. Well, I, you know, I can see that uh, is a pretty good description of you. <laughs> True enough. I, like I own that description. Like yes. Uh, John, let's look at what is likely to happen now that we have a split Congress. We have a Democratic administration running one house or one chamber and a Republican leadership handling the other. What's going to be the result of that split? Let me give you an example of what could be the result, but probably won't be. And then an example of what ought not to be the result, but probably will be. <laughs> so the first okay. one would be um, on things like the budget or immigration, uh, because you've got these two closely divided chambers and a president who I frankly think is unlikely to be a second term president, either because he doesn't run or because he loses the election. It would seem like lots of people would have a motivation to come up with some sort of bipartisan deal on some big issue. And it could be something like getting the at least reducing the deficits or trying to get some sort of sanity about our border policy or something like that. And you can imagine with both closely divided chambers, one D and one R, that they could negotiate this out and people wouldn't love the result because that's what happens when you do legislative compromises. But it would make things better and it would improve the status of the people who make the deal. And the general public would probably welcome either a budget, some kind of serious attempt to address deficit spending or some kind of serious attempt to address the, the border mess. Uh, but I don't think it's going to happen because I just think that the people who don't want a deal, and there are a few who just don't care about it, they either don't care about the issue or they would like to demagogue the issue. I think that they will try to sabotage any such negotiations and they might well succeed. Now, what I don't think ought to happen, but very likely will, is that the Democratic Senate and the Republican House will simply focus on their respective investigative powers and just engage in a series over the next 24 months of uh, rather loud, rather public saber-rattling sort of investigations 
about maybe legitimate issues, but probably not much. And they will accomplish not very much, but they will make a tremendous amount of noise. So, for example, Republicans in the House are talking about how they're going to investigate Hunter Biden and the Biden family, which actually I think does deserve some investigation, but is already being investigated. But I'm, I don't have anything against Congress exercising some oversight when uh, Joe Biden was vice president or subsequently when he was not vice president, but potentially running for president. Did he have some kind of untoward relationship with some of Hunter Biden's business associates around the world? That's a legitimate question to ask. I'm just not sure the Republicans uh, want to do a serious investigation rather than just sort of a payback investigation. And similarly, uh, there was this lengthy, as we know, January 6th commission and investigation, which did delve it deeply into the issue and brought a lot of new information to the fore. And I thought it was, you know, where aspects of it were useful, though I didn't, I didn't think the so-called criminal referral was meaningful at all. There's no such really thing as criminal. It's not the job of Congress to, you know, devise bills of indictment for the you know, Justice Department, it's all silly, but that wasn't useless. I think the Republicans will respond by investigating the uh, 2020 riots that happened uh, over much of the country during the summer and in places like Portland went on and on and on for, I don't know, 100 days. There were repeated attacks on federal buildings. It was a genuine series of riots that in some cases might even be called something like an insurrection. Just like the January 6th insurrection, it was never going to succeed. And it didn't succeed, and it was carried out by a bunch of nincompoops, but it was something that deserves some attention. I'm just afraid that, again, it will devolve into theatrics. And similarly, I think on the Democratic side, there will be a, a additional attempts to investigate Donald Trump, in part because they hate Donald Trump and want to, uh, you know, Democrats in Congress just want to keep, you know, running up the score against him, but also because they would like him to be the center of attention. They kind of want him to be nominated <laughs> for president again in 2024 because they think he'll be the easiest Republican to beat. So I think both parties have these incentives to spend a lot of time on theatrics and not much time on legislating. I hope I'm wrong about that. I fear I may be right. The Republican Party is uh, sort of at odds with themselves on the role of Donald Trump. He according to news reports, continues to lose a lot of support. There seems to be sort of a, a recurring theme that they would rather him not run again. I'm talking about the more moderate Republicans. Uh, what do you see Donald Trump's uh, future as far as uh, a member of the Republican Party and as a potential candidate for uh, the presidency again? I think it would be foolish to discount the possibility that Donald Trump could be nominated again in 2024. I don't think it's the most likely outcome, but I just don't think you should just rule it out entirely. And I've one of the few times my crystal ball has been deeply cracked and led me astray was predicting in 2016 that Trump would not be nominated. Obviously, he was. Um, that being said, I think Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, if he runs, uh, would be the more likely nominee. It has not couldn't it could be somebody else. It could be somebody other than Trump or DeSantis. But I think if you could see, for example, a DeSantis Trump race and not, you know, half a dozen other Republicans getting significant slivers of the vote in the primaries, I think DeSantis would beat him. And I'm not even sure it would be close. That being said, will DeSantis run? I don't know. Lots of people assume he's going to run. I'm not sure that he's made a final decision on that. And if DeSantis doesn't run, 
Does that mean that Trump is presumptively going to be nominated again? I wouldn't assume that either, because there are other candidates who may not have the profile of Ron DeSantis, but are st still have significant profiles around uh, among Republican uh, primary voters, including other Republican governors. I mean, Glenn Youngkin, for example, the governor of Virginia, might run. Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, former ambassador of the UN, would, would, would potentially run in that scenario, and others. So I think the Republican nomination is is no one sewn up, but the most likely nominee is DeSantis. And I think if it were a DeSantis-Joe Biden race in 2024, barring some strange event or something, DeSantis would probably crush Biden, which the Democrats understand. They either don't want Biden to run or they want Donald Trump to be the nominee <laughs> either way. So that's that's how I see it. Why do, why do, I, do I think that about DeSantis? I, I don't not like some groupie for Ron DeSantis or anything, but just look at his record. He, he took uh, the uh, governorship in 2018 with a very narrow margin in a competitive state. Four years later, he's overwhelmingly reelected, wins places like Miami that a Republican gubernatorial candidate really shouldn't have any business winning by a large, significant margin, actually. It wasn't even tiny. Um, he's just a pretty good politician, and he's a governor, and governors know a little bit more about how to run for and be president than other kinds of politicians do, in my opinion. So I think that he's a, a he's a, a real talent. The Democrats would be foolish to discount him. I don't think they are. I think they re recognize that it's a challenge. And I think that there would be pressure if DeSantis announced that he was going to run and the early polls were promising and Trump's campaign continued to flounder around like it. I mean, there's hardly even a Trump presidential campaign to speak of right now. He just seems to be hanging around Mar-a-Lago uh, calling people on the phone and playing golf, and there's just not much happening with this campaign. Imagine that continues, and after the legislative session in Florida concludes next spring, uh, maybe by the summer, DeSantis announces. Uh, I think Democrats would really push uh, Joe Biden to say, look, you, you had a very successful term as president, but you are the oldest president ever. You really shouldn't run for re-election, clear the field, and let us nominate somebody who can take on DeSantis. I think that's what they will do. I don't know if Biden will listen, but I think that's a scenario that at least that by the spring or summer would play out very publicly. Um, and there are some Democrats, probably governors again, who would step forward and run in that scenario. Name some of those. Well, I think Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, would like to be one, as would Gretchen Whitmer, who's the governor of Michigan. Conservatives, I know, Republicans, I know, snicker at those two individuals, but Gretchen Whitmer, at least, was just reelected in a fairly competitive state of Michigan and obviously has an ability to get some crossover votes among just non-democratic partisans. Gavin Newsom might be more of a stretch, but he does have a lot of ability. He easily beat back a recall effort. Uh, it's kind of hard to imagine a governor of California, a fairly liberal governor of California, winning a presidential race. But there's a lot of things that have happened recently that seemed unimaginable. So let's, let's not set that aside. I actually think a dark horse Democratic presidential nominee that people ought to be paying more attention to. And I know he's not like out of central casting or anything, but Jared Polis, who's the governor of Colorado, is a fairly moderate governor of Colorado. He has some very strongly Democratic positions and more moderate positions. Um, he's an interesting candidate for a variety of reasons and could be a, a real threat to the Republicans if he were to run, Democrats were to actually nominate him, which I suspect they won't. Might I mention one other Democratic governor who has never lost an election, 
who by national democratic standards is a bit of a moderate and has a lot of political ability. You know who I'm talking about, Roy Cooper. Why isn't Roy Cooper at the top of democratic wishes for a presidential candidate? He ought to be. He's a successful politician in a competitive state, one of the most populous states in the union. I don't think he could be nominated. And I think that tells you a lot about the state of the Democratic Party in the United States right now. People complain and talk a lot about the Republican Party, what's happened to it in the last several years. Democratic Party has gotten to a point where somebody like Roy Cooper isn't even being considered seriously. And that's a mistake. Our guest is John Hood. We have one final segment coming up. You stay tuned for more of Carolina Newsmakers. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting a Teenager Learning the Lingo. GOAT, G O A T, acronym, stands for Greatest of All Time, as in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit adoptuskids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. We're back on Carolina Newsmakers with our guest, John Hood, president of the John William Pope Foundation and a frequent guest on our program. We talked about all sorts of things, including inflation and recession and uh, the dynamics of Congress. Uh, we've talked about... Uh, uh, well, we've talked about a number of things. We've talked about potential candidates for the role of governor of North Carolina, which is up and coming in less than two years now. I'd like to turn now, John, to something on the international level and talk about the Ukraine situation, because that's turned out to be a mess for Russia, one that they did not anticipate. I think uh, from what I'm reading, and I, this is one topic that I, I find so interesting, I read everything I can, uh, and that is that Russia would like to get out of that mess, but I don't know that they know how uh, to get out with any kind of face-saving. What's your perspective on how Russia could get out of that or, or how that whole situation might end up? I think that Vladimir Putin could get himself out of that if he really wanted to. And I don't, this is not a cheeky statement like he could just withdraw his troops, of course. I mean, that's true, but he's not going to do that. What I mean is his claim was that these Russian speaking minorities in Ukraine were being mistreated, that they really want to be part of Russia. In fact, that Ukraine is a part of Russia, that the distinction between Russia and Ukraine isn't really meaningful anyway. Ukrainians are just sort of wayward cousins who need to be brought back into the fold. So he's got this entire weird ideological, quasi-historical, mostly fantasy rationale that he has offered. He could come up with a equally fantastic conclusion to his fantasy rationale by saying something like, our purpose in this limited military action was to defend our, uh, our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. We have done so. Ukraine has been punished for their wayward, for their ways, their evil ways, their, their Nazi tempta uh, temptations and so forth, the kind of nonsense he's been talking about. He could put a lot of that nonsense into a new speech and say, now that we have accomplished that, we're going to reposition our forces. We are concerned about an invasion from the hegemony of uh, United States and the uh, NATO allies, 
So we're going to reposition our troops. We're going to preserve Crimea. <laughs> well, Sorry, guys. well, John is, uh, uh, he, he took, it, took a sip of water and he is trying to get his voice back. Uh, John, are you okay now? I am. I think, a bit more? I think my attempt to talk in my in in Vladimir Putin's voice has really created an allergic reaction or something. But what I was saying is, he could invent a invent a rationale for pulling his troops out and <clears throat> make an argument that he has accomplished his primary objective. He's not going to give up Crimea, and I'm not sure that uh, the Ukrainians would insist that he give up Crimea if they had any sense. They would accept some kind of end to the war at the moment, perhaps having reclaimed virtually all the territory they lost, and then some potentially in East Ukraine. And then maybe they negotiate some kind of way in which some of the states in Ukraine enjoy some additional autonomy, or there's some things that are done in both Ukraine, the Ukrainian and the Russian languages. In other words, give Putin a little bit of face saving, but not very much, and certainly not territorial concessions and then negotiate over time the status of Crimea. I think that Russia will not give up its claim to Crimea, and I think Ukraine understands that, even though Ukraine wants sovereignty reasserted. But I think something like that they might have to agree to disagree and negotiate about in the future, rather than Ukraine trying to fight to literally throw the Russians entirely out of the Crimean Peninsula, which I think is probably beyond their capabilities. It's just my, I'm no you know, strategic expert or anything, but that's how I read it. And the people that I do consider to be experts in this field seem to be thinking along similar lines. If Putin really wanted to end this, if he thought it was costing more than it was gaining, this was the way he would do it. And he would partly blame the U.S. He would blame NATO and say, look, I've got to reposition forces to defend Mother Russia against a potential invasion across the Polish border. I mean, it's complete fantasy. But that's what he would say. Yeah. John, um, of course, there's also all sorts of rumors about Putin's health. Who's next? Who will take over Russia after Putin, which can't be too far off one way or the other? And how does that affect us? And also, how does that affect our relationship with India that we talked about earlier? I don't think anybody truly knows which individual would become the leader of Russia. I mean, there's some various theories. He's got some court lackeys around him. What's interesting, though, is that a number of them, like the Chechen leader, whose name I forget right now, but that they couldn't possibly be the the sub the, the successor. They, they couldn't be the president or the prime minister of Russia. They're not Russians. You know? They're ethnic minorities, and that would not sell. That wouldn't make any sense. So I think that uh, Putin dying or somehow... Uh, leaving his post, I think probably by dying, would create tremendous uncertainty and, and instability in Russia. There are some who even argue that would be more dangerous, which I think is false, but some argue that the instability would be more dangerous. I still, in the long run, I feel more optimism about Russia than I do, for example, about China, in the sense that Russia has a tremendous amount of grievance uh, but its actual power is declining. It knows its power is declining, and everybody else knows that its power, its relative power, is declining. And it seems possible that with new leaders and with a different approach, maybe a less centralized approach to ruling Russia, 
that there could be some attempt to actually address some of the country's real problems, population decline and uh, economic stagnation and so forth, too, too much reliance on fossil fuels. And there could be some possible way that Russia at least becomes less of a pariah and more of a attempting to be developed country sort of uh, sort of power. China is a very different story. They they don't feel declined. They might they might uh, have reasons the Chinese to feel some worry about their decline. Their population is also going to end up going down and so forth. But the Chinese have much more of a sense that it is there that the century is theirs. This is time for China's place in the sun. China is not simply going to be the dominant player in Asia. It'll be the dominant player in the world. And they have much more confidence, which is more dangerous than the Russians, who obviously have the opposite of confidence. It's one of the reasons why Putin's rhetoric is so crazy and the Russians are so desperate to claim victory out of a clear defeat. It's because there is a chip on their shoulder and it's the size of a house. You go all the way back to General MacArthur. He's always assumed that China would be ultimately our biggest problem. Uh, where does India fit into all this? How, how, where, where will India, India sooner or later is going to, have to choose a side? Uh, where will they well, come down? Well, and it's already chosen a side. It's against China. Uh, there's just no question about it. I mean, you know, among other reasons, its primary adversary, Pakistan, is a client of China. So, so India is not unaligned here. It's just India also doesn't feel very close to the United States. So it is against China. That doesn't mean that it sees itself uh, as a American ally in the same way that Japan does or NATO does or various other countries around the world do. And part of that is longstanding and understandable. And China or India is a very large country with its own resources, its own history. And it's important not to try to paint it as just an actor in, a, in somebody else's story. But keep in mind that one of the uh, nations, one of the powers, was so aghast at America's uh, retreat running away from Afghanistan is India, which is, this is their neck of the woods. And it was very important for India, for Afghanistan to become something other than a terror state, a pariah state, uh, another uh, uh, sort of source of instability for India. And they had some hope during the period of American and NATO involvement in Afghanistan that something more normal and a potential partner might actually arise in, in Afghanistan. That is no longer the case. And India has every reason to be aggrieved about that. Tom, we've got about, uh, I guess, four minutes left on the program. Um, what do you think the headlines are going to be for the next six months on all fronts? Uh, we've talked about a lot of them already, but what do you think we should be watching and waiting for and what is more likely to happen say, during the next three months? Naturally, the, the, the bit of news that people in, in, in our neck of the woods care most about is inflation and the economy. Will things get better or worse? Um, we're all hoping they get better. I think we're all fearing they'll get worse before they get better. And that'll be the dominant news. I also think that the you're, we've already been in this show illustrating that 2022 cycle is over, and immediately everybody started talking about the 2024 political cycle. This is sort of the way things have, have developed. Presidential races in particular have become popular entertainment. The primaries are more interesting than the general election. 
because there's more actors and there's more uncertainty who's going to get the nomination. So I think that there'll be a lot of, of headlines over the next several months about the presidential race, about the Republicans and Democrats potentially running for president. Here in North Carolina, there will be additional jockeying for position. You know, we've mentioned that a number of statewide offices like lieutenant governor and attorney general, labor commissioner, state Supreme Court, these races will all be held in 2024. They'll all be competitive. There are already announced candidates for all of the seats I just mentioned. There are people saying, I'm going to run for lieutenant governor. I'm going to run for attorney general. Two Republicans have already announced for labor commissioner. One sitting member of the North Carolina Court of Appeals, Jefferson Griffin, has already announced he's running for the state Supreme Court seat in 2024 against Mike Morgan, the Democrat, if Morgan chooses to run again, the incumbent. So we already have announced candidates. That some, in some cases, they've already filed paperwork suggesting they have a committee going. So the political process for 2024 cycle has already started. <clears throat> now, a related and this is more of an obscure thing, but something you and I care a lot about is the future of the media in the United States and here in North Carolina. We've already been seeing uh, changes in the way people get their information. That started a generation ago with the Internet, of course. But more recently, the economics of the media business have been changing. One of the ways that TV networks in particular, as well as national newspapers, have adjusted to this is to basically treat politics as entertainment. Their entire business model, the business model of Fox News and CNN and MSNBC is built on conflict, on colorful sort of extreme characters, loud yelling, <laughs> and Donald Trump or similar characters. It's like, it's like a soap opera. And uh, so even if it wasn't that interesting to the general public, it is very interesting to the segment of people who keep those kinds of networks in the black, who watch these shows religiously or don't and, and generate the ad revenue. What they want is endless talk about who's going to be the next president. And so that's why we're getting it. We're going to get it on the news networks and in the national newspapers. So whether we like it or not, the economy, which of course is very important, and the international scene, the, the fate of Ukraine and what's going on with China and the various attempts to constrain it, and then the political race of 2024, potentially, particularly for president, those are the dominant headlines uh, over the next few months. And I guess it'll be interesting to see if other events intrude. There could be a national disaster or something else. But I think right now, Don, those are the main issues to be, the main stories to be watching. Interesting. Well, John, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Uh, as always, very insightful. We appreciate it. If you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast or listen to the segments that you might have missed, you can go online to carolinanewsmakers.com and hear the entire broadcast or any one of the, two, the four segments, either one. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, who promises us that we will have another interesting guest next week on this same group of stations all across North Carolina. For next week, have a nice week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong 
Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.